You know that I love to talk about books, but even better is books about books or books about books about books. I mean, you get my drift. From the Emirates Literature Foundation in Dubai, you are listening to the Boundless Book Club, where we talk about the Russian dolls of literature today. Or the pinata cake of literature. You know, those cakes you cut open and then there are lots of sweets inside. Delicious. Uh, I'm guessing you've been to a lot of children's birthday parties. I have. You are here with me, Annabelle. And me, Andrea. And today we have have with us Dania Druby, our head of education at the foundation. And joining us later is Nadia Wasef, the author of the fabulous memoir, Shelf Life, Chronicles of a Cairo Bookseller. Welcome, Dania. Hello, thank you for having me. On today's topic, we have been spoiled for choice. There are so many books that bring to life the world of books, bookshops, libraries, book binding, stealing books, book clubs, and that's just skimming the surface. So let's start with you, Dania. What have you brought us today? What's your book about books? Well, when you guys told me about the topic, there's one book that popped into my head immediately. And I'm assuming that's because it was memorable to me because I read this a long time ago. And the book is called, I don't know if you can see, The Storied Life of A.J. Fikri by Gabrielle Zevin. And I read this, I read this, I think, in 2015 or 16. So... The, the minute I you told me the topic, it was, you know, it popped into my head. So this is a book about a 39-year-old man whose wife just passed away and he becomes this miserable, he owns a bookshop with his wife. And after his wife passes away, he becomes a miserable old man. He behaves like an old man. He hates life. He hates people. He doesn't like talking to anyone. And he's surrounded with his the books in his bookshop. And he becomes this drunken man. Until the day that a mysterious package shows up in his bookshop and changes his life. So I leave it at that. So what's in the package? What, can you tell us what's in the package? Well, I can tell you the package is a baby. So he goes out for a run and forgets <laughs> to lock his <laughs> forget to lock his bookshop. And he lives above his bookshop. So he goes out for a run, comes back and finds the door a little bit open and goes in and hears crying. And he finds a baby in the children's section of his bookshop. And oh my goodness. I leave I leave the readers to figure out what happens, but it's a very heartwarming story. There's a lot of references to books in this book uh, because obviously he is a bookseller and his life is all about books. Yes, so this is, I read a lot of reviews about this book and I it apparently it's a huge hit with booksellers and authors and avid readers because each chapter starts with a book review, actually a short story review by the character of the book, A.J. Fickery. Initially, when I read the books, uh, some of the some of the books I didn't recognize, and I thought they were fake books, but they're all short story books that, and this is part of his character, is because he hates life, and he has a huge list of all the genres that he hates. He prefers short stories because they're quick, they're fast, and, you know, they're, you know, they, you get to the ending very quickly. What does he have to say about self-help? <laughs> he hates them. 
but he hates anything to do with vampires, anything to do with artificial intelligence, anything to do with science fiction, romance. I mean, he went terminology, everything. He just wants a nonfiction book that he can read and get it over with. Rare collection of Edgar Allan Poe's first poems, which he keeps that book in a climate-controlled cabinet in his room. And not because he loves his poems or he values he values the, the words of the poems, but because he knows this is a rare collection and this is his 401k plan. So if everything, you know, if the business goes down, he knows he can sell this for a lot of money and just retire with that money. So and he goes on throughout the book telling his telling people how much he hates this at this collection or this the, the poems and the manuscript gets stolen in the first few pages of the book so he goes to report that manuscript to the police and the police officer asks him so this is a favorite book of yours he goes no i hate it i, I hate the poems i hate the, the poet and he goes then why are you so upset because because you don't understand it's an important book he goes, okay, so it's one of your favorite books. No, you're not hearing me. I hate him. It's just an important rare collection. It's money. It's a financial crisis for him. So, so he goes on through the whole book, you know, trying to find his rare collection and obviously his adventures with, with the baby that shows up at his doorstep. Uh, the, the character reviews in the first chapter, which is Lamb to the Slaughter, by Roald Dahl. <laughs> so this is his first review of the first book, short book review that he does. Would you like me to read you his review if you're interested? Yeah. So he says, wife kills husband with frozen leg of lamb, then disposes of the weapon by feeding it to the cops. Serviceable enough, dull offering. Though Lambes, who is the uh, police officer in the town, Questioned whether a professional housewife could successfully cook a leg of lamb in the manner described, that is, without thawing, seizing, seasoning, or marinade. Wouldn't this result in tough, unevenly cooked meat? My business isn't cooking or crime, but if you dispute this detail, the whole story begins to unravel. Despite this reservation, it makes the cut because of a girl I know who, had, who loved James and the giant peach once upon a time. I like that. I, I actually remember the first time I read that story when I was a teenager and I thought it was the best, cleverest thing. I know that we've, you know, there's a bit of a spoiler for anyone who goes to read the story, but it's still worth reading. But now I'm thinking about it, like, yes, the leg of lamb is not thawed before cooking. That's actually <laughs> a great point. <laughs> and it's all ruined. Thanks so much. <laughs> no, that sounds like a great book about books. and. There is a lot going on in that story. So we find there's a there's a baby in the children's section, a manuscript stolen in the first few pages. It just seems like a very entertaining read. Is is yours as entertaining and as full of, you know, abandoned children and stolen manuscripts? No, I don't have any of those things. So that's probably good. They probably, you know, we're covering a lot of ground in the books about books genre by by having different different things. I've got a, I've got an author and I've got a book with lots of 
little literary references, which is really fun. But if you, you know, it's fun if you get it. If you don't get it, it's also okay because it's not trying to be clever about it. And I want to just start by talking a little bit about how this book came into being. If you imagine that you are a star, your name is in light above the theatres in the West End. You've got all the best actors acting in your plays and you go to Hollywood to further your career and you get there and war breaks out. So there's no returning for you, not for 14 years. And you sit there thinking, God, what have I done? I don't want to be here. I just, I miss home. And you're so filled with nostalgia. So you sit in your study overlooking the Pacific Ocean, beautiful views, and you're not even seeing it because inwardly you're just looking at a little village in Suffolk with thatch cottages, dilapidated manor houses, and you begin to imagine. You think back to this house that you drove, well, this old castle you drove by once. That was just this really once upon a time beautiful castle, but now in ruins. And you begin to imagine the sort of family that would live there. And that's how Dodie Smith came to write I Capture the Castle, which is just, it's just one of those absolutely fantastic coming of age stories that has influenced so many writers today. It was first published in 1948, but she spent many years fine tuning it and going over it. And she was very precious about it. It's told in the voice of a 17 year old girl, Cassandra, who lives in this dilapidated castle in Suffolk with her family, the Mortmains. And it's her sister, her older sister, Rose, her brother, Thomas, and her dad, who is the great writer. He wrote a once very successful literary book. And then he wrote nothing else since because he has the most crippling writer's block. So when he just published his book, they rented this beautiful castle to live in and then they ran out of money. So now they just sell off furniture and they rent out a room to their former maid's son. And that's their only source of income. And uh, Rose, who is the older daughter, she is reading a lot of Jane Austen and she is impatient for a romance and also marriage to take her out of poverty, the way it happened in Austen's novels. So there are lots of references to those. And that's kind of, there's marriage and then there's the next book that's not getting written. Those are their two hopes for the whole family. Then enter the Cottons, wealthy Americans who've inherited Scotney Hall, which is effectively then they become the landlords of this family. And as luck would have it, there are two young eligible bachelors. And then all the fun begins. But for me, one of the absolutely best scenes in the whole book is when Cassandra very frustrated with her dad's lack of, you know, they all, they all know he's got this great talent, but she's frustrated with the lack of productivity. And she knows that he needs to write the next book. So she locks him in the tower uh, or the turret room. Before she locks him in there, she's placed his desk there, a chair, his typewriter. And she locks him in there and says, I'm not letting you out until you start writing. And he's in there for like days because he needs to start writing. It's fantastic. But 
I think the best introduction to Cassandra is the voice of Cassandra. So this is the starting, the first paragraph of the book. I write this sitting in the kitchen sink. That is, my feet are in it. The rest of me is on the draining board, which I padded with our dog's blanket and the tea cozy. I can't say that I'm really comfortable. And there's a depressing smell of carbolic soap. But this is the only part of the kitchen where there's any daylight left. And I have found that sitting in a place where you've never sat before can be inspiring. I wrote my very best poem while sitting on the hen house. Though even that wasn't a very good poem. I've decided my poetry is so bad, I mustn't write any more of it. And that's just, that's just her voice. And she's so brilliant. And it's a sort of story that makes you nostalgic for a life that you never lived. And that like, it's not your memories, but still you find yourself thinking, oh, how lovely it was to grow up in the castle in the 1930s. And you're like, hold on, that wasn't me. But it's, it's brilliant. I recommend it to absolutely everybody. And you might recognize her name from the blockbuster 101 Dalmatians. And she liked Dalmatians. I write this sitting in the kitchen sink. It's on like yeah. every single list of best opening lines in literature. Interesting. Yes. Please read it. Oh, wow. Because oh, I've seen I Capture the Castle and I've never really known what it was. Um, and she also wrote 101 Dalmatians. That's so yes, cool. Yes. Yeah. And I have a Dalmatian. You know, it's just so many reasons to love this book. <laughs> I'm very annoyed that you're going to have a tangential link to 101 Dalmatians on this episode. Where is the Dalmatian, Andrea? What should I oh, yes. put him on here? He's not allowed <laughs> yes. in my office. Oh, okay. All right. Maybe we could like add a picture of him in the show notes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> What's your I book, Annabelle? Okay, so <laughs> as you know, Andrea, my hopes at the start of uh, recording this episode were very high and that they were dashed. Uh, because I, I was looking for recommendations of books about books and I basically got a whole bunch of them and I was really excited. I was really like, this isn't, it's not getting me here. It's not getting me here. And I randomly was flicking through trying to find an audiobook at the weekend and I stumbled across something called The Liar's Dictionary by Ellie Williams. And it has given me life, as the kids say. It is essentially as a quick read um, and thematically it's about all the things that language can tell us um, and all the things that language can define but also all the things that language can't quite capture and it does that really beautifully. It is two dual narrations. Uh, one narrator is a young intern in London who works for the Swansby's New Encyclopedic Dictionary, uh, which is a 19th century reference volume that was supposed to be the most comprehensive British dictionary ever created, but the project was disrupted um, at the start of World War One, I, I believe, and all the printing presses were forced to be melted into munitions. So basically, this intern, Mallory, is working at this dictionary that is known for being unfinished essentially it's not as 
popular as the Oxford English Dictionary, but they're in the process of essentially digitizing it. So she's there, she's got this job, and she has a rather eccentric uh, boss called David Swansby, who's of the Swansby family. And it flits between her story going through the dictionary and digitizing it and the story of the lexicographer in 1899 called Winsworth, who was one of the lexicographers putting the Swansby Dictionary together. So a hundred years apart, completely different people, um, both have their own sort of love story going on simultaneously as well. What happens is, Mallory starts noticing that there are mistakes in the dictionary um, and that they've all been put in there by this lexicographer in 1899 called Winsworth. And it's about how this intern has to go through these old 19th century index cards and find all of these mistakes and follow this, this trail essentially of Mount Weasels. Do you know and what the definition is, can we no. have the definition please? <laughs> Sure, the definition, which I know off the top of my head and I'm not looking up at all. Uh, a mount weasel is a fake entry, essentially. It's a bit of fake information deliberately added to a reference work like a map or a dictionary to root out anyone who's illegally copying them. It's fake news. It is fake oh. news. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, and I've tried to I've tried to describe it as, as broadly as I can, but the characters are in themselves are absolutely wonderful. It's written so well. There are all these tangents that the characters go off into, but and you're introduced to words that you know that you never use in your daily life, but it's just so well done. And it's short and it's snappy. The plot is good as well. Um, it's just little things like the fact that Winsworth, for example, when you're introduced to him as a character, you meet him at a speech therapist to treat a lisp that he is apparently invented just because he was bored. So he's been pretending the entire time that he has this lisp, but he doesn't have one. And he's a speech <laughs> therapist and he's trying to keep up the fact that he has a lisp while the speech therapist tries to treat him for said lisp. Guess what section of the encyclopedia he is working on? The S? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The S section. The man with the fake lisp is working on the S section. <laughs> is this like a like a, a verbose detective story? Or is it like a historical type of... It's like a Victoria... You've got a bit of gaslit Victoriana going on, obviously, because of the time. And there's this sleuthing aspect to it as well. Because you don't really... There isn't a conclusion to all the threads of the mystery until the very end of the novel. So it's it, you have to wait until the very end for everything to be tied up. So there is that sense of, okay, what's the mystery here? So the pacing is definitely there, but it's just a really well-written mystery, I'd say. I, I was thinking about this as I was listening to it because she includes, um, she includes a lot of onomatopoeia in the book. So I was thinking how much this would actually work if you were reading it on paper rather than listening yeah. to it because a part like a big part of the joy is just hearing all of these wonderful words Your that words. we never use just read aloud like and it, it's kind of magical when you hear it and there's little things like observations throughout the book like with its symmetry and little dashed ismuth between the two words hourglass on the page is like the object itself lying on its side or balanced mid spin 
or a freakish weed is just a flower that has not asked permission. That sounds so romantic. <laughs> Which is true. Um, there was one moment that I particularly liked where um, she's talking about what a title, a dictionary's title would look like. She says the dictionary's title would be stamped in gold across the spine. Its paper would have a pleasing creaminess and weight with a typeface implying elegance and undeniably suave firmness or firm suaveness. A typeface that would be played by Jeremy Brett or Romaine Brooks. A typeface with cheekbones. Nice. Yeah. Wow. Also, it's just completely mad. It's absolutely bonkers. There's pelican wrestling. I'm not going to give you any context for this, but there, there's there's pelican wrestling and an explosion. Wow. And well, this is on my next audiobook list. <laughs> and Victorian pornography. We are thrilled to welcome Nadja Wasif, author of Shelf Life, Chronicles of a Cairo Bookseller. She is the co-founder of Diwan, the only independent bookstore in Egypt when it opened in 2002. Nadia, within a decade, you had stores in 10 locations and around 150 employees, and you managed the business for 14 years through ups and downs. There's so much to talk about in your book, but I want to start by asking you, bookseller to bookseller, are you left with any occupational damage from those years? Do you find yourself straightening stacks of books and recommending things to random strangers based on how they look? You know, we began Diwen um, because we loved books and we loved the culture of reading. And essentially, we wanted to spend time doing that and we couldn't find a place to do that in. So we created the place we'd like to spend time in. And I think... It was one of these things where build it and they will come. So I, we weren't the only ones. I think we were the only ones that were ignorant enough to take the risk. And the one thing I constantly say is that if I had known what the next 20 years of my life would look like, I would never have done it. But luckily, I didn't know. And luckily, the, all of us, you know, him, Nihal, our other partners who are silent partners, none of us ever actually thought through what we were doing. So, you know, the day we opened, we didn't have a warehouse. We didn't have enough books. I remember calling up a publisher and, and begging him if we could borrow some more of his books to just line the shelves with because we'd run out of money for stock. I'd finished the marketing budget on the Diwen bags that I thought were beautiful. And they did become this iconic thing. But we didn't have any money for marketing. It was just ridiculous. When, when, if you talk to someone today with all the knowledge surrounding entrepreneurship and book selling, and you tell them, you know, I'm doing this bookstore and this is my ethos and this is where I'm going with this, but no, I don't have marketing budget. No, I don't have a financial plan. Oh, no, no, warehouse? I don't have a warehouse. You would come across as really pathetic, but it happened. It so, worked. It worked. <laughs> the logistical aspects and the business side of things that you were constantly trying to like figure out as you as you went that's one thing but it just seemed like from the very beginning you knew exactly what you wanted in terms of the spirit of the place and I wondered if you could talk a little bit more about the context of why that was needed and whether or not like how much of that was Cairo needed it and how much of it was you needed that 
that's such a wonderful question. And um, I think the answer is, I think everybody needed it, but in different ways. I look at my children today, they are the internet generation. So they don't have this issue of belonging and identity. They have other issues as a result of the internet and social media and so on. But when we were growing up, you know, I remember reading Edward Said's Out of Place. Of course, Orientalism set the stage for everything. And then, you know, his memoir, Out of Place, reading Ahdaf Suif, reading all of these things. And it was always this idea of, you know, and, and in university, studying literature and the idea of otherness and the East and the West and, and all the sort of, you know, the jargon and, and the stereotypes that go with it. And I remember thinking when we were talking about the visual aspect of Diwan, because over time she became a person and we were having arguments with her as a person and so on. The idea was that, you know, East and West are not binaries. This is a dialogue and they're not at opposite ends of the spectrum. We are having a conversation and we need each other. And that really came off in the logo where we had it in sort of Arabic and English and calligraphy and typo. the whole thing was a mishmash. And also in the interiors, we had, you know, the, um, the mahogany shelves that sort of had this oldish feel to them with the stainless steel finish that had a very modern edge to it. And everything for us was about bringing in things that could be seen as opposites, could be seen as binaries, but they're not. And it was part, and, and this was also, you know, in the section called Egypt Essentials. We had books in Arabic, English, French, and German from different, you know, we had the cookbook, we had the history books, we had the sociology books, the um, ancient Egypt guidebooks, the coffee table books, all of these in one section. And the idea was to, you know, give this sort of cubist, um, like when you refract, I think refract is the right word, one ray of light through a prism and it splits into seven colors. It was that idea in a sense. And, um, and it's just like when I go to Don'ts and they have, you know, the, the fiction section by, you know, country or, or nationality of author. It's a lovely way of looking at things. It's not the only way, but it's a fantastic way of looking at books and writing and authorship and so on. Well, what would you say was your favorite type of customer in the bookstore? The type who would come in and suggest books to me because, <laughs> no, because I mean, you know, when we started, I had my initial list of um, English books that mm -hmm. I was going to stack. And I had one shelf, it was the gender shelf. That was the one that meant the most to me. And I wasn't allowed to have more than that because everybody's like, who's gonna buy books about gender? And, you know, at the same time, you have to be retail minded and every shelf has to generate an income. You know, it can't just sit there and it has to participate in the conversation as well. So, but I, I started with a list and, and I started with certain categories. And I can safely tell you that five years later, yeah, that list, some of it was there. It had been exploded and expanded and the categories had been exploded and expanded. And that was largely thanks to Diwan's readers and customers who would come in and be like, well, have you not heard of this book? Have you not, you know, and I remember I had a friend who came to the bookstore and she told me, you know, there's this book coming out by a guy called Dan Brown and it's called the Da Vinci Code. And I think it's going to be good. And I was like, huh? You know, and, and she was one of the avid readers. And she always had it spot on. And I thought, well, let's give this one a go. 
And I was like, oh my God, she called it. She called it. You know, inversely, we had um, Elizabeth Gilbert. Her first book was called Stern Men. And we'd ordered that. And it was based on, you know, this idea that this book, you know, it spoke, you know, to, to us. And we thought, wow, this is going to do so well. And it never sold. And I was gutted and I was so annoyed. And then, you know, years later, when Elizabeth Gilbert does Eat, Pray, Love, and it's flying off the shelves and the tables, and we can't order enough of it, I was furious, you know, because I was like, <laughs> here I was, I, I, you know, I had you the first time, but nobody listened. And then you start to develop, you know, I, I feel like at some point I sounded crazy because you start to get really emotionally attached and invested in the titles that you pick and you want them to succeed and you're backing them up by standing on the shop floor and telling people, this is it, I love this. And then it doesn't sell. And you're like, no, there's something wrong with me or there's something wrong with you. You know, you just can't take this sort of defeat well. Well, I couldn't take this sort of defeat well. Particularly, could you speak about the unique challenges of opening the bookshops in Cairo that you think set apart your experience from other booksellers around the world? Um, and and just why it was such insanity, um, what you did? Well, I think it was insane because at the time, I mean, look, this is a Cairo in, in the book. This is a Cairo that no longer exists. There's a different Cairo there. And it's just as beautiful and just as eccentric as the one, you know, in 2002 that I'm talking about. But at the time, it's a double-edged sword. So it was this tipping point where, you know, people were coming back that had studied abroad and there were all these economic reforms and everyone was excited about the changes that were about to happen. You had that on, on one end. And then you also had this, you know, I mean, to me, I always think of it as a very big moment. 2002, Ala El Aswani publishes Amarit Yaqubian, the Yaqubian building. And this is the first time in decades that we have an Egyptian bestseller that everybody's reading. It's not just the intellectuals and it's not just the avid readers. It's the guy on the corner who's sitting, who will pick up the random newspaper. He's reading it too, you know? And so you have this thing all of a sudden that captures everybody's imagination. And this to me was a turning point. Um, the, the downside was that you also have this legacy of sort of, you know, book selling had sort of you know atrophied as an industry and we'd had years and decades of socialism that had gone a bit awry because you know things when they become bureaucratic and they, they sort of tend to veer off or sort of dither into something else and the problem was that you know every we had all these slogans reading for everybody but at the end of the day, nobody owned it. You know, at some point people have to take ownership of their culture and they have to invest in it. And I mean, and I say that, and then I'm going to go off and say, we live in a culture, in a, in a capitalistic age where everything has to have a value and everything has to generate a profit. And this is problematic and this is wrong. I, I know I'm contradicting myself, but both of these instances exist and they work, they, they dialogue in different ways. So the book for us had become this thing that, you know, it's a book and we all own it and we love it, but yet nobody really owns it. 
and and bookselling had become this sort of you know rundown industry it wasn't you know exciting it wasn't vibrant and then you had this moment where you know we take this crazy decision to let's open a bookstore so you had that legacy that we were conscious of and wanting to interact with and to change and it did change you also have on a macro level a society on the verge of something new and vibrant and interesting and entrepreneurship was taking off at this time so you have that and then you have this bestseller of ala el aswani so when you put all these things together it all starts to dialogue in a very interesting way and you come out with you know the fact that so the first diwan is a success and then people are saying well hold on a minute maybe i can open a bookstore too so you have more people opening bookstores and they some of them are different some of them look a little bit like divan you know but they're opening bookstores and then you have people saying well wait a minute ala el aswani he's a full time dentist and he's just got the side gig of writing well maybe i can write too so you have people different characters starting to take on writing and you know they're not professionals they're not part of the cultural intelligentsia they're none of that they're just a guy who wants to write or a woman who sits down and says well you know what i'm going to write this because i feel like i need to so when you've got all of this going on and then you have you know young entrepreneurs who say well wait a minute i'm going to open a publishing house so all of these different things happen at the same time i'm not going to be arrogant and say that diwan can take credit for this but i can definitely say that diwan was part of this all of us all these different you know writers publishing houses bookstores society all dialogued and produced something beautiful uh, on this episode we're talking about books about books which is obviously why we're talking to you so we just wondered if you had a favorite piece of fiction that featured the book industry in some way it's not a piece of fiction look i have lots of favorites okay mm. um because i think bookstores make very compelling backdrops to things so you've got you know um the bookshop book which really you know jen campbell goes around and finds bookshops you know in abandoned uh, barns in uh, churches and warehouses and you know you have stuff like that you have things like the bookseller of kabul which is probably given you know the time that we're going through now is probably making a comeback um bookshops are also in fiction extremely attractive for you know romance uh, murder mystery that kind of thing homage to all of those and love them this is my go to guy so this is the bookseller's tale by, by martin latham and it is brilliant it's an anatomy or an autopsy or a biography of bookselling reading writing libraries and i mean there's so many things i mean it's a very meaty read you know it's not one of those i'm going to switch off my mind and and you know read. no 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 you're in full attention but it's brilliant and i mean there's so many things you know like for instance that there was uh, oh god my memory is terrible fatma el something okay 1800s uh, sorry 800 um she opened one of the first extant libraries in fez you know um and he talks about that he talks about what happened when you know when we talk about the invention of the printing press i don't know what that signifies to people's imagination but he clearly makes this sort of connection between the fact that reading became a private event mm. and i i had never thought of that before that 
prior to the printing press and you know the the not well i don't know if we can call it mass production in the sense of how we think of mass production today but the fact that you could produce multiple identical copies of the same text you know that meant something completely different before that people used to read in group you had the lecture you had someone reading out loud and now you take reading into your own personal space into your home you know he talks about reading as sort of as women reading because you know reading is always sort of seen as a women's um uh what does he call it a uh, 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 source of feminine uh, interiority and the fact that this is threatening you know it's threatening to their husbands it's threatening to their fathers it's it's threatening and i love that i love i can't rave enough about this book i really can't so it's not fiction it's completely non fiction it's historical it's it, it's brilliant brilliant um sounds fantastic thank you for that recommendation uh, not what i expected at all um so really grateful for that Nadia, thanks so much for joining us today. It has been wonderful to talk to you. And I think we are all left with the desire to seek out our nearest proper bookshop. If you are hungry for more, we do have a listicle about books that bring to life the world of books on our website. So just pop over to elfdubai.org and click blog. Join us again in two weeks time when we will be talking about the Booker Prize shortlist and those who didn't make it. That's all for today. Over and out.